Across the country and around the world, across the street and around the corner, this is Over the Culture. This is Over the Culture podcast, where you get to hear my spin on things I like, like music, sports, sports entertainment, movies, TV shows, and your mom. You also get to hear about things I don't like, like hillbilly redneck co-workers. Fuck them. I am your bastard of ceremonies, the one gig kid, Pat Stay Black, Alex Treblack, Reefer Sutherland, Luke Flytalker, the most interesting blared in podcasting, the troller of trolls, the prince of petty, Steve G. This is Over the Culture. Let's talk about this week. So I have this co-worker, and I'll just refer to him as Nutjob the Uneducated. And Nutjob the Uneducated is one of those motherfuckers who just loves sharing their one-sided, jaded view and perspective and outlook on the world. And to anyone who cares to fucking listen, even to those who don't. And I feel like that is toxic in a work environment because your outlook, your view, your perspective is always white let's just say it he, he has a very conservative uh borderline qa9 view on things and i'm glad i didn't know nut job the uneducated in 2020 and in, in when everything was going down in the summer um i, I just started this place in September and I, I'm realizing that nut job the uneducated is going to be one of those motherfuckers that I'll have to uh, address accordingly move accordingly uh, and, and by that I mean stay the fuck away from because I don't deal with people like that uh, who have no problem sharing their opinions even though those opinions can be offensive just out in the public out in the open and you live in a city uh, or you live in the, the surrounding area of a city that is a melting pot. It is so many people of various backgrounds, ethnicities, races, religions, all, all of that. And for you to have this very white supremacist stance on things, um, you know, there's only a matter of time before it catches up with you. And, you know, this is somebody who is the one who is a rabble rouser if you will he is the type of person who if you if you're around him enough uh he'll say some things that'll raise your hairs and i'm not the one nut job the uneducated so little thing that happened over the week uh we covered this game uh and it was a wcc game west coast conference uh basketball game and the West Coast Conference initiated this rule called the Russell Rule, uh, named after Bill Russell. He played for the San, San Francisco's college back in the 50s. And the Russell Rule is essentially a affirmative action in the world of sports. It requires all of the schools in the West Coast Conference to at least interview a qualified minority for their positions in coaching or in, in any of the staffing. And Nutjob the Uneducated, he just wanted to share with the world, uh, he wanted to share with anyone present how he felt about the Russell Rule. And his concerns were very typical. I've heard this spiel before. He was telling, uh, he was talking about how it's bullshit and how a lot of people are taking these jobs who real people, who the real qualified people should be having. And by the real qualified people, he really means his white buddies, Gunther, Jimbo, 
Jim Bob, an assistant cousin fucker, sister mother bastard fucker, yeah Jimbo, yeah we deserve them jobs. It's always the uneducated whites who are so concerned about people's credentials. Oh man, he got that because of affirmative action. It's always the uneducated whites who were talking about they're stealing our jobs. What if you are getting this job because of a fraud? What if you're filling somebody's quota? Maybe you're not qualified. Maybe there's somebody who is a minority who deserves your job more than you. You ever thought about that shit? What's your credentials? What school did you go to? What were you doing? nut job, the uneducated, before you got this job. Maybe there's somebody who's more than qualified, just graduated from college, is interested in the world of television, is and does way more in their 20s building up their resume than you are in your 40s. Nut job, the uneducated. How about that fly shit? You ever consider that? You ever decide to look in the mirror? Let me look at your resume, because I know I graduated from a four-year accredited college, a university. You, you know one of those? I graduated from one of those. Got a Bachelor of Arts, film, theater, television production. And by the way, before I even got that degree, I was doing some PBS production, production, assistive, production assistive work. I still can't talk, but my credentials are better than you. Uneducated, the nut job. Nut job, the uneducated. I did 10 years with Fox, i.e. the purgatory, before I got this job, nut job. So yeah, nut job, my best advice, stay the fuck away from Steve G because he's not the one. We will go hand in motherfucking hand to that HR office. And I will ask you, nut job, the uneducated, please, Share with the HR office how you feel about the Russell rule. Please enlighten us how you feel about affirmative action. Nut job, the uneducated. Now, besides this fucking asshole, asshat, another asshat is running rampant in the state of good old Texas. Greg Asshat Abbott has decided to lift the ban and, you know, back to spreading again. Greg Abbott, and I, I, I know Texans love their Republican senators and governors just as much as they love Whataburger, but fuck, man. Do your due diligence, Texas. Get the fuck out there and vote and get that motherfucker out of office. I lost a friend, good guy, Andrew. He's from England. He was a, a show promoter down in Beaumont. He was doing that for years. And back when my band, Priest of Hiroshima, when we were covering Rage Against the Machine, he would book us. And we would do shows with Soundgarden tributes, Tool tributes. We had a good time. And Andrew, man, uh, he he loved the small town life in Beaumont, Texas. And he would sit out and smoke cigarettes with us, man, and share stories of people that he's met and just being in this industry, being involved with booking and promoting, uh, living in England and moving to uh, America, living in Texas for years. And he could talk to us about anything rock and roll related, man. And he was a good dude. He always, man, we would spend all night outside, man, talking after our show, literally. 
And I, I found out that he lost his life to COVID earlier this year in January. And RIP, man. Andrew, you're a good dude, man. You're in a much better place than dealing with fucking Greg Asshat as your governor. So my, my Texan people, they have not been feeling Greg Abbott for his whole tenure. Just about, just about. I'm glad that none of my friends are Greg Abbott asshat people. That just tells me I I don't know a lot of people, not as many people as I thought in Texas. Because clearly there were enough people to get out there and vote for the asshat. And I want to talk about coming to America and how much I did not fucking like it. Now, if you promote something a year, two years, three years in advance, and you know the people want it, they've been salivating, foaming at the mouth for this shit, it better hit. It better deliver. Especially when you get star-studded with all these comedic legends. Oh my God. And just legends, legends, who aren't even in the world of comedy. Within the first 10 minutes of watching Coming to America 2, I had seen about 20 superstar black people. Of course, there's Eddie Murphy, there's Arsenio Hall, and then there's Wesley Snipes, and then there's Michael Blackson, and then there's In Vogue with Salt and Peppa doing What a Man, followed by Gladys Knight. They're not even related. I mean, weird flex, but okay. And then there's James Earl Jones, and then there's Morgan Freeman for about 20 seconds, just for the fact that you could say you had Morgan Freeman in your fucking movie. But there's Lou Nell, and then there's Tracy Morgan, there's Leslie Jones, there's even Colin Jost. And then there's even Eddie Murphy's cute, little, hot, ridiculously fine daughter in one of the roles. Oh, my God. All of these comedic legends, all of this talent, all of these ha-ha smarts couldn't add up to one fucking laugh for Steve G. And that is just my opinion. Who the fuck am I? Just a nigga with a podcast. I get it. But people are offended. A lot of people are just pearl clutching. I said what I said on Facebook and oh, my God. Oh my God! How how dare you? Wow. Well, you can't compare it to the original. Just because, like, look, man. Even if I didn't know the backstory, if I never seen the original, never seen Coming to America, didn't know Simi Akeem, none of that shit. King Jaffe, none of it. If I just went into this brand spanking new, it still, as a standalone, was not funny to me. And the rule of a comedy movie, I, I thought the intent of a comedy movie was to make you laugh. I didn't come here for all the foo-foo, soft, delicate pillow talk shit. No. Yes, the bitches are in there are bad. Yeah, Tiana Taylor's sexy as fuck. I'm sorry to say bitch, but I mean, the women in there, there's, of course, man, there were women that were beautiful in the original. Lisa's back. She's reprised her role. What about her freaky little sister? What about Eric LaSalle, the heir of Soul Glow? Yeah, of course you got the the barbershop people, but it's just, ah, it ain't hitting the same, man. I don't know. Some of the things that stood out were uh, Leslie Jones, uh, her part, she plays Eddie Murphy or Akeem's baby mama that he didn't know about. And they, they had like an illegitimate son or whatever. And he's like a grown ass man at this point by the time Akeem knows. And, uh, you know, there's a scene with the son and Colin Jost. That was a cool scene. So, yeah. But I mean, as a whole, 
I mean, the movie just wasn't hidden for me, man. It just seemed like a, a big black superstar flex. Like you have all of these people, uh, and, you know, and it's good to see these people alive. I'm glad James Amos was able to like reprise his role as the manager of McDonald's or was it, uh, Whack Arnold, whatever the fuck it was, McDowell's, yeah, yeah Lisa's dad, I, I'm glad James Earl Jones is still with us, uh, the fact that they had Morgan Freeman is like, okay, you know, the whole Gladys Knight and Vogue thing, they were like, okay, uh, this 90s group doing What a Man, followed by Gladys Knight doing Midnight Train to Georgia, it just, like, where's the drop-off, like, they're not even connected, I get it, like, they're women acts, but I, I don't know, man, and, much respect to all those legends involved, but it, it was just a strong no for me. Um, and I, I kind of had low expectations, e even with the bar being low. It's just, man, it was, it was corny to me, and I appreciate corny shit. I'm a corny motherfucker. I admit that. But uh, coming to America too, I mean... I, I don't think I'm the only one. Um, now, what was good was Drake, uh, his last album, uh, or is it an EP called Scary Hours 2. It's only three tracks, uh, about 12 minutes. The whole, the whole project's about 12 minutes. And each track, all three are hidden. What's next? Uh, that's the opening track, just under three minutes. That's all him. The second track, Wants and Needs, featuring Lil Baby, is about just over three minutes. And then Lemon Pepper Freestyle, featuring Rick Ross. And Aubrey is snapping. Lemon Pepper Freestyle is six minutes, 21 seconds. And that is my favorite out of the three. All three are hidden. But that Lemon Pepper Freestyle with Rose, Boos. Yes. Six minutes, 21 seconds. Scary Hours 2. Uh, I'm not going to go far and say Drake is the goat. Like, let's not jump the gun. Let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Uh, he has grown on me. There was a time when I was, uh, fuck Audrey, fuck Drake. Uh, yeah, yeah, man, soft ass Canadian. Why are you trying to play a gangster? Why are you trying to be odd? You ain't odd. But no. He's totally turned the tide, and I've came around a corner. Drake. You're doing your thing, and Scary Hours 2 is a must-listen. Now, I'm a wrestling fan, a wrestling nerd, as most people know, anyone who knows me. And just over the week, Shaq made an appearance on AEW. Um, he, he was actually going through tables. He did some tumbles. He did some power bombs, and he looks the part, man. This is perfect for him. This is a perfect uh, post-retirement career move for him. He's been on TNT as one of the analysts. Uh, NBA on TNT for years, him, Chuck, Kenny Smith, Ernie, and he's perfect for that. When they made the announcement that he was joining the team, I was like, of course, it's a no-brainer. He just retired. Like, he, he was born for this. Shaq is just one of those dudes. He has that personality. He's like a Jim Carrey. He's like a Will Smith, a Tom Hanks, just a affable guy. He, he's one of those people who's like, man, if you don't like him, you're a fucking terrorist. Shaq, man, and so he made an appearance on AEW, and he already has the personality, he has a larger than life personality, on top of being a large man, 
and he I saw clips of it because I haven't really been watching AEW but he's got it man he's got it he's built for this performance uh, entertainment this uh, performance art that we call American professional wrestling um, now I'm sure he's on a limited schedule because he still has his obligations with NBA on TNT but Brock Lesnar he would make a handful of appearances every year he's been doing that for the past what I don't know five six years shows up for uh, maybe a Monday Night Raw or two before the pay-per-view then shows up for the pay-per-view back to vacation Shaq doesn't have to be at every uh, TV taping but yeah big ups to the big Aristotle man never fake a funk on a nasty dunk and speaking of NBA the all-star weekend is here in Atlanta for the weekend and I'm trying my best to avoid those Negro Olympics those super spreader events been there done that I've been a part and involved in about two or three all-star weekends and um I I'm does nothing for me I spend my time here at the crib in the lab making sure the hamster is continuing to run on its wheel. I I don't need to spend money to be around and try to impress and look cool and look fly and be fake about all of the above around people I don't know who are doing the same exact fucking thing coming from all over different parts of the country, different parts of the world passing blunts around, slurping on hookahs. Nope. It's your turn. Oh, it's your hit now. Nah, man. But y'all have at it. I don't even think people can attend the actual event. The game is tonight, and they're going to have the three-point contest and the slam dunk contest during halftime. It's a different, different wave. It's a different vibe. Damn you, COVID. The crowd is a big part of these all-star festivities. Somebody has a dope-ass dunk. You want, you know, I'm used to seeing the crowd get up out of their seat and just go. <sighs> Kevin Hart running into the court. Oh my God! I can't believe that. Horrible Kevin Hart impression. But a couple cool things happened on today, on March 7th. Um, One of the things USA for Africa released, We Are the World, and that was big news. It featured a lot of different people, from Diana Ross to Michael Jackson, Quincy Jones, uh, Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, and your mom. And also uh, Private Parts, the biopic by Howard Stern, was released in 1997. And... I like that movie. Um, it had some, uh, probably some scenes I probably shouldn't have been seeing, but it is what it is. I was a teenager. Who the fuck cares, right? So more on that later. Today in sports history, in 1982, for the first time, the NCAA tournament selection is televised live. In 1986, Wayne Gretzky breaks his own NHL season record with 136 assists. 
1987, Mike Tyson beats James Bonecrusher Smith by unanimous decision in 12 rounds in Las Vegas for WBC, WBA heavyweight boxing titles. In 1996, Magic Johnson is the second NBA player to reach 10,000 career assists. In 2016, Peyton Manning announces his retirement from the Denver Broncos in the NFL, and on that same day, Russian tennis star Maria Sharapova reveals a failed drug test for meldonium at Australian Open in January, subsequently suspended for 15 months. And that was my half-assed sports report. When we come back, I'm going to go over the song We Are the World as it was released on this day, March 7th in 1985. We'll be black after these messages. Birthdays for March 7th. Happy 41st birthday to American actress Lauren Propone. Turning 57 today is American comedian, actress, and screenwriter Wanda Sykes. Happy 61st birthday to American baseball player and sportscaster Joe Carter. Happy 69th birthday to American football player, sportscaster, and politician Lynn Swan. And turning 71 today is his former teammate, American football player and businessman Franco Harris. Sometimes I lose my mind. 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 
And a special mention to those no longer with us. This past Tuesday, we lost Jamaican singer, songwriter, and percussionist Bunny Whaler. Born Neville O'Reilly Livingston on April 10, 1947 in Kingston, Jamaica, he was an original member of reggae group The Wailers, along with Bob Marley and Peter Tosh. A three-time Grammy Award winner, he is considered one of the longtime standard bearers of reggae music. He was also known as Ja B, Bunny O'Reilly, and Bunny Livingston. In October 2018, Whaler suffered a minor stroke, resulting in speech problems. After suffering another stroke in July 2020, he was hospitalized at Andrews Memorial Hospital in St. Andrew Parish, where he eventually died on March 2, 2021 at the age of 73, of complications from the stroke he suffered the previous year. This past Thursday, we lost American professional wrestling promoter Jim Crockett Jr. Born James Allen Crockett Jr. on August 10, 1944 in Charlotte, North Carolina, he was a part owner of Jim Crockett Promotions from 1973 to 1989, a wrestling company affiliated with the National Wrestling Alliance. From 1976 to 1987, Jim Crockett Promotions also owned the Charlotte Orioles, a minor league baseball team based in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the Winston-Salem Polar Twins in the Southern Hockey League from 1974 to 1975. On February 28, 2021, Dave Meltzer reported that Crockett was in grave condition. Four days later, Robert Gibson reported that Crockett died due to complications of liver and kidney failure. He was 76. Rest easy, y'all. We Are the World is a charity single originally recorded by the supergroup USA for Africa in 1985. It was written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie and produced by Quincy Jones and Michael O'Martian for the album We Are the World. 
with sales in excess of 20 million copies, it is the eighth best-selling physical single of all time. Following Band-Aid's 1984 Do They Know It's Christmas project in the UK, an idea for the creation of an American benefit single for African famine relief came from activist Harry Belafonte, who along with fundraiser Ken Cragen was instrumental in bringing the vision to reality. Several musicians were contacted by the pair before Jackson and Richie were assigned the task of writing the song. The duo completed the writing of We Are the World seven weeks after the release of Do They Know It's Christmas, and only one night before We Are the World's first recording session on January 21st, 1985. The historic event brought together some of the time's most well-known music industry artists. The song was released on March 7, 1985 as the first single from the album by Columbia Records, a worldwide commercial success, topping music charts throughout the world and becoming the fastest selling U.S. pop single in history. The first ever single to be certified multi-platinum, We Are The World received a quadruple platinum certification by the Recording Industry Association of America, awarded numerous honors including three Grammy Awards, one American Music Award, and a People's Choice Award. The song was promoted with a critically received music video, a VHS, a special edition magazine, a simulcast, and several books, posters, and shirts. The promotion and merchandise aided the success of We Are The World and raised over $63 million, equivalent to $147 million today, for humanitarian aid in Africa and the U.S. Harry Belafonte planned to have the proceeds donated to a new organization called United Supportive Artists for Africa, or USA for Africa. The nonprofit foundation would then provide food and relief and aid to starving people in Africa, specifically Ethiopia, where a 1983 to 1985 famine raged. The famine ultimately killed approximately one million people. Belafonte's idea for an American version of Band-Aid's Do They Know It's Christmas project in the UK also planned to set aside money to help eliminate hunger in the United States of America. He contacted entertainment manager and fellow fundraiser Ken Cragen, who asked his clients Lionel Richie and Kenny Rogers to participate. Cragen and the two musicians agreed to help Belafonte's mission and in turn enlisted the cooperation of Stevie Wonder to add more name value to their project. Quincy Jones was drafted to co-produce the song, taking time out from his work on the film Color Purple. Jones also telephoned Michael Jackson, who had just released the commercially successful Thriller album and had concluded a tour with his brothers. Jackson told Richie that he not only wanted to sing the song, but to participate in its writing as well. The songwriting team originally included Wonder, whose time was constrained by his songwriting for the film The Woman in Red. So Jackson and Richie proceeded to write We Are the World themselves at Havenhurst, the Jackson family home in Encino, California. For a week, the two spent every night working on lyrics and melodies in Jackson's bedroom. They knew that they wanted a song that would be easy to sing and memorable. The pair wanted to create an anthem. Jackson's older sister, LaToya, watched the two work on the song and later contended that Richie only wrote a few lines for the track. She stated that her younger brother wrote 99% of the lyrics, but he's never felt it necessary to say that. LaToya further commented on the song's creation in an interview with the U.S. celebrity news magazine People. I'd go into the room while they were writing, and it would be very quiet, which is odd, since Michael's usually very cheery when he works. It was very emotional for them. Richie had recorded two melodies for We Are The World, which Jackson took, adding music and words to the song on the same day. Jackson stated, I love working quickly. I went ahead without even Lionel knowing. I couldn't wait. I went in and came out the same night with the song completed. Drums, piano, strings, and words to the chorus. Jackson then presented his demo to Richie and Jones, who were both shocked. 
They did not expect the pop star to see the structure of the song so quickly. The next meetings between Jackson and Richie were unfruitful. The pair did not produce any additional vocals and got no work done. It was not until the night of January 21st, 1985, that Richie and Jackson completed the lyrics and melody of We Are The World within two and a half hours, one night before the song's first recording session. Ken Cragen chaired a production meeting at a bungalow off Sunset Boulevard on January 25, 1985. There, Cragen and his team discussed where the recording sessions with the supergroup of musicians should take place. He stated that the single most damaging piece of information is where we're doing this. If that shows up anywhere, we've got a chaotic situation that could totally destroy the project. The moment a Prince, a Michael Jackson, a Bob Dylan, I guarantee you, drives up and sees a mob around the studio, he will never come in. On the same night, Quincy Jones, associate producer and vocal arranger Tom Baller was given the task of matching each solo line with the right voice. Baller stated, it's like vocal arranging in a perfect world. Jones disagreed, stating that the task was like putting a watermelon in a Coke bottle. The following evening, Lionel Richie held a choreography session at his home, where it was decided who would stand where. The final night of recording was held on January 28, 1985 at A&M Recording Studios in Hollywood. Michael Jackson arrived at 8 p.m. earlier than the other artists to record his solo section and record a vocal chorus by himself. He was subsequently joined in the recording studio by the remaining USA for Africa artists, who included Ray Charles, Billy Joel, Diana Ross, Cyndi Lauper, Bruce Springsteen, and Tina Turner. Also in attendance were five of Jackson's siblings, Jackie, LaToya, Marlon, Randy, and Tito. Many of the participants came straight from an American Music Awards ceremony, which had been held that same night. Invited musician Prince, who would have had a part in which he and Michael Jackson sang to each other, did not attend the recording session. The reason given for his absence is varied. One newspaper claimed that Prince did not want to record with other acts. Another report from the time of We Are The World's recording suggested that the musician did not want to partake in the session because organizer Bob Geldof called him a creep. Prince did, however, donate an exclusive track for the Tears in Your Eyes for the We Are The World album. Eddie Murphy was asked by Wonder to participate, but Murphy turned him down as he was busy recording Party All The Time. Murphy later stated that he realized what it was and he felt like an idiot. In all, more than 45 of America's top musicians participated in the recording, and another 50 had to be turned away. Upon entering the recording studio, the musicians were greeted by a sign pinned to the door which read, Please check your egos at the door. They were also greeted by Stevie Wonder, who proclaimed that if the recording was not completed in one take, he and Ray Charles, two blind men, would drive everybody home. We Are the World is sung from a first-person viewpoint, allowing the audience to internalize the message by singing the word we together. It has been described as an appeal to human compassion. The first lines in the song's repetitive chorus proclaim, We are the world, we are the children, we are the ones who make a brighter day, so let's start giving. We Are the World opens with Lionel Richie, Stevie Wonder, Paul Simon, Kenny Rogers, James Ingram, Tina Turner, and Billy Joel singing the first verse. Michael Jackson and Diana Ross follow, completing the first chorus together. Dionne Warwick, Willie Nelson, and Al Jarreau sing the second verse, before Bruce Springsteen, Kenny Loggins, Steve Perry, and Daryl ha Hall go through the second chorus. Co-writer Jackson, Huey Lewis, Cyndi Lauper, and Kim Carnes follow the song's bridge. This structuring of the song is said to be create a sense of continuous surprise and emotional buildup. We Are the World concludes the Bob Dylan and Ray Charles singing a full chorus, Wonder and Springsteen duetting, and ad-libs from Charles and Ingram.
On March 7, 1985, We Are The World was released as a single in both 7-inch and 12-inch formats. The song was the only one released from the We Are The World album and became a chart success around the world. In the US, it was a number one hit on the R&B singles chart, the Hot Adult Contemporary Tracks chart, and the Billboard Hot 100, where it remained for a month. The single had initially debuted at number 21 on the Hot 100, the highest entry since Michael Jackson's Thriller entered the charts at number 20 the year before. It took four weeks for the song to claim the number one spot, half the time a single would normally have taken to reach its charting peak. On the Hot 100, the song moved from 21 to 5 to 2, and then number one. We Are The World might have reached top of the Hot 100 chart sooner if it were not for the success of Phil Collins' One More Night, which received a significant level of support from both pop and rock listeners. We Are The World also entered Billboard's top rock tracks and hot country single charts, where it peaked at numbers 27 and 76, respectively. The song became the first single since the Beatles' Let It Be to enter Billboard's top five within the two weeks of release. Outside of the U.S., the single reached number one in Australia, France, Ireland, Italy, New Zealand, the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, and the U.K. The song peaked at number two in only two countries, Germany and Austria. Four months after the release of We Are The World, USA for Africa had taken in almost 10.8 million. The majority of the money came from record sales within the US. Members of the public also donated money, almost 1.3 million within the same time period. In May 1985, USA for Africa officials estimated that they sold between 45 million and 47 million worth of official merchandise around the world. Organizer Ken Cragen announced that they would not be distributing all of the money at once. Instead, he revealed that the foundation would be looking into finding a long-term solution for Africa's problems. We could go out and spend it all in one shot. Maybe we'd save some lives in the short term, but it would be like putting a band-aid over a serious wound. Cragen noted that experts had predicted that it would take at least 10 to 20 years to make a slight difference in Africa's long-term problems. So that wraps up another edition of Over the Culture Podcast. Make sure you check out my other show, Happened in the 90s, released every Thursday with my buddy Matt. We talk about things that happened in the 90s. All right, y'all be cool. Peace.